2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum. Stay on target. Maximum. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho capitalist perspective. Tonight we have a guest who's going to be joining us, and it's related to, well, the time of year where all the little kidlings go back to the school, and millions of them are going to go back and head back into the camps, the day prisons, uh, for another year, and this will be episode 92 where we're talking about schooling the world, Uh, and I'm going to introduce our guest in just a few minutes once we get into the last nighters portion of the show, but before we do that, let's say hello to Robert. How you doing, sir? What's up, everybody? Back to do another show? Happy to be here. All right. So, uh, how you doing, Daniel? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We have a fair amount of pre-show content of us fumbling around like old men trying to get the technology to work. Um, so, I think that's going to have to make up for some of the lack of actual anarchy content here before we get into the last nighters portion of the show. But the show notes and more can be found at actualanarchy.com/slash ninety-two. And if you're ready, Robert and mystery guest, we can get into the last nighters portion of the show. Why wouldn't we? All right. Wayne's World. Wayne's World. Hey everyone, it's Daniel and Robert, The Last Nighters, and we're going to talk about schooling the world. This is episode 35, and the show notes and more can be found at lastnighters.com slash 35. A couple of quick announcements. Uh, we have a special guest, Jack V. Lloyd of The Voluntarist Comic, and we are talking about schooling the world. This is a movie that he suggested after I was like, hey, I want to talk about school a little bit. And he was game, and so Robert and he and I are all going to do this, and uh, here we are. Here we are. So, Jack, you want to introduce yourself and mention what you do and where people can find your work? Sure. I am Jack. Jack V. Lloyd, as some see me on the internet, mostly arguing in threads. And <laughs> I do a lot of things. Uh, it's hard to put it all in one short bit, but basically I make a lot of memes. I produce a lot of content, sometimes for myself, sometimes for others. Make comic books um, related to Liberty with Voluntarists. Make some Anarchy Ball stuff here and there. And um, just pretty much kind of am a, I guess you could say, a KY jelly or astroglide of liberty. I just like to help make things smooth and liquid for people <laughs> so they have a lot more pleasure spreading the message. Well, that's right. That's what I do. <laughs> All right. And where can people find you uh, other than in the Facebook threads? Um, was it volcomic.com? That's the website? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, so volcomic, V-O-L-C-O-M-I-C, volcomic.com is a major uh, outlet you'd see me on. Um 
And something soon coming through the works. It's you know it's in the slow process, but I've been prototyping it for a while. Is the Voluntarius Association vassociation.com. But that's that's in the near future. So that's another project I'm working on. All right, very cool. And uh, speaking of projects that we work on, um, this show is part of the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. So Launchpadians and uh, uh, everyone else, you can find this at thelaunchpadmedia.com. I always forget to plug that, right, Robert? <laughs> You're doing great, Daniel. Keep it up, buddy. Well, at least it's in the first like five minutes of the show this time versus last time. It was probably a good 20 minutes in. But I got to say my favorite time when we plugged it in was, um, was it the Planet of the Apes? It was, it was something where it was like halfway through and we were cracking a joke about, was it elephants or camels or poop or something? And we we're like, <laughs> you only get this level of insight from the Launchpad Media. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. I have a terrible memory. I don't, I don't remember. remember what you're talking about, but I believe you when you talk about us making a joke about poop or animals. Poop and animals. Poop. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, this is a highbrow show and we have uh, <laughs> a very highbrow guest. So we're going to have some good times tonight. We're going to talk about schooling the world. And again, this can be found at lastnighters.com slash 35. So I'm going to read the little description about this and then we can get into the discussion. So School in the World came out in 2010, and it uh, is described as this. If you wanted to change an ancient culture in a generation, how would you do it? You would change the way it educates its children. The U.S. government knew this in the 19th century when it forced Native American children into government boarding schools. Today, volunteers build schools in traditional societies around the world, convinced that school is the only way to a quote-unquote, better life for indigenous children. But is this true? What really happens when we replace a traditional culture's way of learning and understanding the world with our own? School in the world takes a challenging, sometimes funny, ultimately deeply disturbing look at the effects of modern education on the world's last sustainable indigenous cultures. So this is a uh, documentary that came out, what, about eight years ago? And it is available on filmsforaction.org uh, on a I think it's like a donation basis. So if you watch it and you like it, you can sort of honor system, put a penny, take a penny, that kind of a thing, like office space. So, um, Robert, what, is, what are your thoughts just on the description there? And then we'll get into uh, Jack's thoughts. That's basically what the movie's about. It's, it, it identifies, you know, some aggression, which I appreciated in the very, very beginning. And then it kind of goes off the rails trying to equate that to a more broad kind of you know, worldwide problem as, as, as the movie sees it. Um, so, and I, I think we're just going to have to get into all kinds of interesting issues with uh, this film. And uh, I think a, a, a younger me would have been very much more behind this movie. I think I would have been very much more into its message and been on board with, you know, what it saw as issues and problems. But current day Robert <laughs> found this movie to be fairly insufferable. And I, it's an only about an hour long movie, but I just kept pausing it and then taking notes and pausing it and taking notes. It took me about two, two to three hours to get actually get through the movie. Um, so I know I've got way more notes than I'll actually get to. But um, those are my initial thoughts. All right. So before we get to Jack, um, I just want to mention that we have now launched a Patreon for The Last Nighters, and we can potentially go longer in that portion of the show. So Patreon supporters, uh, you can support us at lastnighters.com slash Patreon. We might have some of the some of the content behind the paywall, so to speak, if uh, if our guests can stick around long enough so we can get through more of Robert's notes that don't fit into the roughly hour-long version of the Last Nighters show here. So Jack, your thoughts on the description and just the overall before we uh, really get into the nitty-gritty, so to speak. 
Sure. I mean, the film is definitely, you know, a leftist bent on um, education, specifically, I'd say left uh, anarchist, you could almost say. And it's interesting because it's probably the closest thing you get to a critique, you know, of, the, of schooling from a seemingly like left anarchist side. So I, to me, that's just fascinating just to see on its own um, that, you know, you, you kind of almost don't see too much from people who and I say leftists um, to be, you know, be concrete here. I'm talking about um you know, American progressives, people who are closer to egalitarians, things like that. And it, what's fascinating is that, you know, in, especially in, um, you could say, Western culture, America's Europe, you know, a lot of the people who are progressives, leftists, like, love education in terms of schooling. Like, they associate the two. Um, and, and because there's such a strong push toward that um, from progressives, um, it's just kind of almost rare to see a critique of of schooling as a concept because there's there's such a fanfare with it. I mean, they, it's it's a true fetish of um, modern leftists. So to me, it's kind of a fascinating glimpse into seeing what it looks like to have both a kind of uh, leftist mindset and to actually be critiquing. Uh, authoritarian things. So in some ways it, it's refreshing, but of course I think uh, we may have some agreement here, Robert, about uh, some of the other in included claims from the video because there's critiques there um, that uh, deal with the nature of advancement, technology, people, and economy that um, I'm not necessarily uh, a fan of, but it's a good food for thought. So it, that's that's what I kind of see the film as. Yeah, and I, I would definitely agree with both of your assessments. And I, I sort of, in watching it, likened it to back when I first became familiar with Ron Paul, I was also becoming familiar with Bernie Sanders. And they both agreed in a couple of areas, like they were both diagnosing problems or the effects of problems. And they even agreed about, you know, the Fed's a problem and we should audit the Fed. They were co-sponsoring things together. And honestly, at the time, I was like, oh, both of these guys sound kind of reasonable to me. Bernie was marked as an independent at the time. He hadn't, I guess, sort of come out of the... Um, political closet as a, you know, more open socialist, at least not to my awareness at the time. But it feels like the movie is sort of doing the same thing, where it's identifying that there are some problems here, but it kind of misallocates them because there's a ton of misallocation in here uh, and doesn't really have a firm grasp of what a better situation or, or a better solution might be. Well, and it's also, it, I, the, the, the take I got was it seemed to be a lot of kind of high-minded people, fairly like Marxy type thinking people, putting their judgment of what, you know, their values onto this younger generation. Like these younger people were choosing to go to these schools so that they could partake in the global marketplace, could take partake in, you know, and compete for these tech jobs to get wealthy, you know, to improve their life. But these people kept saying, you know, are they really improving their life? Are they really, you know, and like they're, they're forgetting these, these old cultures that they're, you know, kind of like leaving in the past. And it really just seemed to me like these people were making value judgments for other people. Like they valued these, you know, other cultures. Great. I'm glad you find value in those people's other cultures. But to say that, you know, these, these cultures are kind of being left behind in today's modern world and how this is like the worst thing. Well, I'm sorry, I, I didn't get all misty-eyed when the movie would juxtapose, you know, a, a family, you know, cutting wheat, like old school style with like a knife. And then some people on the other side, like, you know, it's like super materialistic and like maybe some people doing some drugs and, you know, kind of like wasteoid teenage US behavior, I guess you could call it. I was like, I don't know, man. Yeah, the, the, the wasteoid druggies on the right aren't great, but at least they have the wealth to do it. <laughs> At least they have enough food in their bellies 
And they're obviously, you know, they're making a, a value judgment of their own. I don't know. It seemed to me like it was, it was a lot of privileged people talking about other people, you know, and whether or not their lives were, they were living their lives correctly or not. All right. Those are some very good points, Robert. And I want to pass it over to Jack. What do you, what's your uh, thoughts on Robert's position here? Because it did seem to me like a lot of the people being interviewed, especially I think the guy's name was Wade Davis, who spoke in these sort of... Um, platitudes and rhetoric that sort of mixed harmony and nature with whatever buzzwords he was trying to, you know, fit into the fit into his little presentation there. But uh, what, what do you what are your thoughts so far? Sure. Well, I think that uh, it's really important to look at the nature of, you know, their critiques, because, uh, you know, as you noted, the way that they were describing uh, consumerism and the way they were describing um, industrialism, you know, clearly came from a leftist, you know, seemingly either socialist or Marxist bent. It was, you know, very critical of it. And I think I can empathize with one aspect of that, and that is the compared to what of what was taking place. Because the story here is, is focusing, I think it was on the Lakota, or I'm sorry, the sorry, the Ladakh um, specifically. And it was showing how people in um, what would be considered second, third world countries were uh, being, and I say this, you know, to be very you know, clear um, and literal, exploited, not because of, you know, working to live, but rather actual government colonial imperialism coming in and taking uh, lands, killing people, you know, and commanding that is mandating by the state attendance in school. Um, you know, and that that kind of backdrop there to this idea of the state trying to reprogram people who are relatively independent was a serious issue. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that I think it's great to live how they lived in terms of, you know, living just off the ground and, and not really advancing anything in terms of science and technology. I personally don't care for that. But I can understand the idea here that when people were being pushed out from what was, you know, their freedom and, and lands that they actually had and into the cities, into the state control, the trade-off there was that the state, uh, you know, government was working to undermine individual property rights. So in other words, it went from people actually like having a sense of land ownership and, you know, private property and food to just purely um, sustaining off of the city culture and the background taxes to, you know, needing to live. And it wasn't really, you know, going from, you know, something that was, you know, freedom to more free. I saw it as um, an imposition that went from uh, having freedom, but still relative poverty to, okay, you know, you could have some forms of, you know, schooling and education, but you're going to now be enslaved to the tax and control command cycle of statism. So to that extent, I could definitely empathize with the concept that, you know, here you have these outside uh, government uh, people who are coming in and commanding people to change their lifestyles by decree of law, of course, of course. And this happened in the United States. It happened in other countries because of the British Empire and growing. It was one of the first things that took place is, you know, if you want it, as I said, if you want to change the culture, take the children, re-educate them and indoctrinate them into worship of nationalism in the state. And, and, you, and you saw this quite clearly, whether it was um, even the you know the mission schools that which was you know doing that for Christianity, or otherwise like Native Americans in the United States, they were still fundamentally about um, turning those individuals into products to be used for those who are already in political and economic power. And I definitely empathize with that underlying point um, in terms of noting how that violence arose. You know, it, where it deviates from there is for me, of course, is where they're describing. Um, and and glorifying being in poverty, which is, of course, you know, not exactly like the greatest thing in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's great to be, you know, free and all and have your land um, and, you know, have some independence, you know, and control over your life. 
Uh, but you know, being in misery because you don't have access to modern medicine or you know modern uh, utilities, um, I, I personally don't really uh, want that. I wouldn't want to live in that. So you know, it's one of those things where it's like they make a critique, but then they go too far and they critique you know the wrong elements. When it, you know it really should be a focus on the nature of statism um, and using the violence of law to inculcate uh, blind obedience with children to worship the state. Yeah, it really is kind of annoying how it seems like only libertarians and and ancaps are the ones that constantly have to point out aggression and where the source of the problem is. And it's usually in the aggression part. Like this movie seemed to equate. Like at first, it started talking about colonialism, and I was on board. Mm-hmm. They were talking about how they forced the Native Americans to go into school and become good American Western culture people. Yeah, I'm absolutely with you. But then, then it kind of started demonizing like the the German lady who came and set up a school and the the the, the kids who wanted to go to that school or any, any other kind of tech school, like the best school. I want to go to the best school so I can get these jobs and compete in this you know tech world so I can make money and improve my life. And it just seemed to kind of wash between the two all the same. It was kind of funny though, back to your point about um, you know, the 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 way it was glorifying like poverty, it really, this movie seemed to be made by or made from an anarcho-primitive perspective. <laughs> it was like, yeah, let's all go back. It's like Pol Pot would love this movie. Let's all ditch this technology crap and this crass materialism and Barbies and t- cell phones and get rid of this and let's all go back to the land. It was it was really kind of disgusting. <laughs> like how many people are going to die? Right. Yeah, I mean, exactly. That's, that's the part to me that I can agree with you there. There was a certain level of uh, pedantry there because of the people who are speaking to this um you know obviously they were they clearly were educator you know in specialized fields like the national geographic guy but they they seem to have an odd lusting after a, a you know seemingly simple life or you know a, an agrarian life and it seemed just to me to be rather ignorant to you know look at that with high praise when you consider the realities of it. You know, I think a lot of people look at that as like a Disney movie where it's like, oh, everything's nice and there's no bugs in the wild and, you know, you feel good all the time. But it's it's just not the case in reality. In reality, you know, nature is brutal. The bugs bite. It's not fun. <laughs> if you get an itch or a bite, you know, a bite or a cut of this or that, it could be uh, very deadly. Uh, you know, life is short and brutish uh, without modernization, you know, and so- advancing science in terms of medicine and being able to, you know, resist the elements otherwise. So to me, I always find it concerning whenever, you know, someone one praises that uh, too much because it seems like as if they're on board with that eco-fascism, which is, you know, this idea of like, you know, just be happy to live on the land and go back to that because everything is just going to be peace and rainbows the second that, you know, you're just living with pure nature. And, you know, I mean, anyone who spent any time um, coming close to that can quickly disabuse themselves of that notion. You know, anyone who's ever gone like close to meaningful camp, you know, kinds of camping and you don't have any uh, actual resource with you. I mean, and even that's kind of silly because most people are going to bring elements of modernity with them. I mean, it's very easy to find out and it's not very pleasant to deal with the elements and with animals and with creatures without having some semblance of technology and advancement to uh, resist that and not get injured or die. So, you know, I mean, they have this like wishful thinking about it that, you know, oh, you know, if you just go back to that, everything's just peace and rainbows the way that they present it. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely comes from like this, a, a very abstract entitled, you know, sense or, or almost like a kind of death wish. The people who often hold that mindset kind of see humanity as a cancer to the earth, uh, especially if you're, you know, eco-fascist. So some people who are speaking made me think they were of that bent, ideological bent given some of their statements. Um, but, you know, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating uh, discourse to see there. Yeah, and it's also the, the 
promulgation or the continuation of like Marx's ideas where he was talking about how factory work was dehumanizing and how, you know, you couldn't be a full and complete human and how it kind of debased us all and how this modern tech work was debasing. Whereas this, you know, agrarian farming land living on the life with the, the nature and the world is, is, is this reaffirming in life, you know, enhancing. It, it, I, it's, it's really kind of an arrogant perspective. And I guess he's like, you know, an, an intellectual, so he gets to make this claim, but it's really an arrogant perspective to say that, oh, yeah, that choice that you're doing to, to work in that factory and quadruple your income. Oh, it's really actually hurting you. It's not it's not it's not doing anything positive for you. You're actually worse off. Really? Isn't isn't it that guy's decision to make? Sure. And actually, I'm glad you mentioned that income thing, because they mentioned one curious fact, which is the idea of, oh, well, your income's being shown as increasing because you're going from a non-cash relatively society to having, you know, money. So just if you're, if you're switching over, it looks like you have a lot more. And I could, I could, again, I could empathize with that concept of, you know, of manipulation in the sense that if you went from a society that was based, you know, mostly on just trade, um, you know, you could say the commodities almost turn over into money, but basically you're not using, of course, you know, dollars or other, whatever types of uh, cash money they use over there. If you're switching over, you may not necessarily have a better overall lifestyle. In other words, some people were still not necessarily living better. They didn't have open air land. They didn't have as much freedom. They may have been working in um, poorer jobs um, and they didn't experience a true moving up um, compared to, you know, what they had before. I mean, and that's a, that's a real possibility for many people. You know, the compared to what's is their life may not be technically that much better, but that's, of course, a subjective evaluation, right? And as you said, individuals should be free to choose if they value being, you know, around nature more or if they don't. And I think that in that sense, you know, it, it would be condescending to, on one hand, be like, oh, you know, nature is so great and this or that, but then to shame people because they don't wish to do that. They'd rather have at it and have a tried industrialization and, and, and living in that modern economy. That said, though, again, the focus here, I think, was on the negative aspects of the industrialization that doesn't come on its own without context. You know, when you're looking at what's happening in these other cultures and societies, you know, it's not it's not as close to, or I, should, I, mean, I really say it's trepidation, but freedom as, Ameri as, as some Americans have it. I, and I say that relatively because it's, you know, there's a big difference between like what we think is freedom versus, you know, what is really experienced freedom. Um, you know, in terms of actual law enforcement, because there's many countries where it's like, oh, they have less freedom on the books, but, you know, you can just buy whatever guns you want. The police are not going to get you this or that. Whereas America has a lot more police and more fascistic police state. So it's, you know, it's just an interesting concept to kind of fully put on the mindset of what are these people's compared to what experiences. And in many ways, they were being exploited by the state apparatus. So it's, I can see why, you know, these particular people were like, oh, see, look, their lives are not that much better in the city. It's all gross and it's polluted. Um, and, you know, lots of people are trying, but they fail and they end up on the streets. So I completely get that. But the problem is they don't divorce the deleterious effects um, of the environment uh, due to state paradigm issues related to property rights. They don't, they don't, you know, do a separate analysis on that, um, which I think is, you know, very problematic because you're, you know, you're swinging it into all or nothing thinking when you think, oh, you know, it's just industrial or agriculture, but without, you know, contemplating the nature of 
the state, the laws, the restrictions or the cronyism related to who can start a business, who can't, who can have a home, who can't, those things. So, you know, I could definitely understand where they're getting their ammunition to say, well, look at the compared to what? See, you know, they had a much better life when they were free to be on their own land and they could, you know, do whatever they want in terms of compared to, you know, being a dirty, you know, city bum or street bum who, you know, didn't succeed like they hoped. But, I, you know, I, I think that takes much more intellectual rigor, which they didn't bring to the table, to discuss the nature of how um, the state paradigm uh, would keep people in po- poverty, keeping them in that cycle of poverty. Yeah, those are very good points. And I think that sort of alludes to um, one of the opening statements about how Bernie and Ron Paul would often identify the problems or at least the symptoms of the problems, but then they'd have vastly different conceptions of how they rose about and what was really contributing to them. Uh, so, you guys both spoke a fair amount and I kept coming up with like things I wanted to say, but you guys just kept going. So uh, you had good flow. But I did want to just um, bring up the whole misallocation aspect again, because there is the compulsion aspect of sending these kids to school. So you get uh, the taxation and the compulsion. So you get an overproduction of school. They're taking these kids from these rural areas and driving them away from those and putting them into these militaristic schools to where they really are ripping apart the family. Because that was one of the critiques that this um, movie had or this documentary had was that they're destroying the family unit and the cultures and and honing them into you know divisional labor is like a really good and positive thing for advancement but they were looking at it as well you're only going to be good in these very narrow areas and you're going to lose the rest of all of your general like ability to live within your culture and so that was one of the kind of things that they were pointing at as being um, a problem and i think that this was more kids were in these schools because of the nature of how you know the compulsion and and the taxation in creating the schools and had it been a voluntary situation i think that you would have seen more of the kids stay you know in the lifestyle within their culture and the kids who had an aptitude for it or desire to do it would go and seek out educational opportunities to become part of you know a, a greater network of technology and and part of the global economy and there would be no real issues here i'm not saying it's you know a utopic panacea for everything but voluntary trade and voluntary transactions voluntary decisions typically yield better results and scene uh robert you want to pick up there well i mean everything you just said is absolutely correct uh i I, we mentioned this and of course i think we'd all agree that anytime you're forcing people to do anything you are by definition you know misallocating resources in addition to doing something immoral People would choose, like you said, to do other things. And it's not just forcing, but it's also like with the taxation and the other things, you know, creating an incentive issue that may not exist in a a voluntary society. So, yeah, governments come in and they offer incentives for people to go into fields where they might not otherwise go into. They, They, you know, they'll come out of a school thinking that, you know, this this degree I just got is worth something when actually it's not. There's um, all kinds of issues when government gets involved in this sort of situation. And, you know, that's why government shouldn't be involved in schooling at all. Yeah. And to pick up there, it just shouldn't. I want to I want to kind of point out a couple of things. Number one is that a lot of these people were do-gooders thinking that they were actually helping and having good intentions. And as we all know, you know, the road to hell is paved with them. But also I've seen historically and in the opening where they're talking about civilizing the Indians like they civilized um, uh, Wadey in uh, the outlaw Josie Wales. 
in that it is almost weaponized, like using school to eradicate differences between peoples and imposing the desires of the state upon those people. And we see that even to this day with compulsory school laws in the United States. Um, just two quick examples. In recently, uh, there was a report of the number of school shootings in a one or two year period recently, and they had overinflated the number by something like 80%. And even and NPR was the one who called them on it and said, well, actually, there, well, there were not 236 school shootings. There were more like 11. And a lot of these other ones were, you know, someone committed suicide or there was a, a firearm discharge on a campus or within a mile of a campus or yada, yada, yada. But essentially, it was government statistics used to promote an agenda. And another one that was, that I think just came out today, um, students in Ohio were given an exercise to select eight passengers from a list of racially, ethnically, and religiously diverse candidates, including a gay athlete and an Asian orphan, to take safely to another planet. And their task was to rank them from most deserving to least deserving. And? How did, how did it work out? Uh, well, probably not very well. Um, I don't know what the results were for these kids, but to have that be your your instruction, your your lesson, um, you know, promoting this egalitarian uh, ideal... It, it, it kind of reminded me of the, the, the lesson of the mirror in the documentary here. A mirror is what you use to look in to see yourself. Yeah, and they had to like really drive that point home for what seemed like <laughs> half of the lesson. He's <laughs> like, yeah, you, you use it to look in and to see how you're looking and to make sure you look good, right? It's like, I, I could probably teach you that school. You probably could. In fact, I know a lot of people who do the uh, teach internationally, you know, teach the English. And yeah. the qualifications are, are quite sparse uh, from what I understand. Now, I'm kind of okay with that because, you know, government being involved in like certifying people is bullshit. But you know what I'm saying? I think I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Interesting. Well, you know, I, schooling is a fascinating topic and the School Sucks podcast, I, I believe, is dedicated entirely to it. But one thing that I do want to mention, and I've mentioned this in the past, so forgive me if you've heard this before, but, you know, schools, it's all, it, it all started back, you know, in the Prussian days where, you know, they, they had these issues with people not wanting to die for the state. And of course, you know, if you want people to die for the state and you want to have these awesome wars and you want to take over the world, you need to have people that are willing to die for practically nothing, you know, just patriotism. Just take over this this feeling and the feeling that you get from being in a family and in a community and exploit that and use it for, you know, death and destruction abroad. And if you're going to, you know, indoctrinate people, you, you take them when they're young and impressionable and you get them singing songs and you get them pledging and swearing allegiance and, you know, you get them to rat on each other <laughs> when they don't pledge and swear and bow down and give loyalty to the nation state. And, you know, this is what happens when you have nation states who have a vested interest in having soldiers because war is the lifeblood of the state. The state loves soldiers, dead or alive. They love them. And you need a, you need a healthy supply of them. And this is how you get them. Well, you also need a healthy supply for your crony capitalists who want to have obedient workers in the uh, George Carlin parlance. And I think that they cozy up to government to to get, you know, the obedient workers and the ob obedient soldiers. There's probably a, sure, a certain amount of that for sure. But, you know, this is a fairly recent phenomenon. I mean, Prussian days, you know, just a couple hundred years ago. Not that there haven't been nation states and whatnots, but, you know, nation states didn't, weren't always involved in schooling. And I think we could 
you know, we can get a movement going to turn it around, to get it out of there, you know, through unschooling and private schools, but even the private schools take a lot of money from government. So it's, it's, it's a step in the right direction, but the real, the real answer is to just get them out of the indoctrination camps. That's my plan. That's certainly my plan. Um, we are looking at the unschooling and homeschooling options and Jack and I have been exchanging information and ideas and uh, he's given me a couple of resources for decent websites talking about the various homeschool laws in, in different states. So I can put that on our show notes page because it might be a good resource for a lot of people. But Jack, let's swing it back to you. Um, we've, we've been speaking a lot here. Uh, anything pop up in your mind while, while we were talking? Yeah, I um, I just I, I agree with you there in terms of thinking about the nature of schooling and its purpose. I think that was echoed in the documentary was how it was very militaristic in the training, and that's what it you know originally was was as you know as you noted it was to create obedient soldiers, and of course eventually later on obedient industrial workers. Um, you know having all young people be you know formalized into the same kind of base rote knowledge and obedience training. Um, so that they would be willing to, you know, effectively sacrifice themselves for those who already had political and economic power. Um, and, you know, you saw that as well in, in the film that, you know, the, the kids were doing militaristic style dances and, and their exercises and, you know, doing their salutes and reciting, in some cases, prayers because they're at the mission school or, you know, pledges to the state. And, you know, it's very sick what they do to young people um, that, you know, in a way would never be excused in any other context. I mean, could you imagine if every day five-year-olds were forced to stand up and pledge to Walmart, you know, or Costco or something? I mean, you know, it'd be insane. You'd be like, what? You're having these little kids who have no idea what it is that, you know, you're asking them to pledge their lives to uh, just mindlessly repeat, you know, and recite these, these effectively prayers to a corporate organization, you know, it would sound insane, but that's literally what happens across America for 50 plus million kids every, uh, every school day. You know, they start their day with the prayer to the state effectively. Um, and, and some people try to play it off as if it's benign, but <laughs> if you have 12 consecutive years of a psychology of worshiping the state, I mean, by the end of those years, it just becomes natural um, and normalized um, the, the worship and people have an emotional knee-jerk reaction to anyone who does anything different. Um, that's you know the whole point is is to uh, culturally adjust people um, to make that appear like as if that's just how it always was. Of course, people always loved the nature of the states, and you were just you know born here to do that and become a good citizen. And um, the you know the level of manipulations is is so much more uh, severe, I think, in some ways because you're saying how you know the modern schooling is kind of recent. You know, in, in old times. Uh, you know, like Roman era or before, you know, if there was training in terms of education, you know, schooling style, it was done with the military service, you know, so the you know school and military service were just one and the same. But now by divorcing that, it becomes uh, much more readily cloaked the true nature of what, you know, schooling is, you know, by having it separated from, you know, the uniforms of, uh, you know, military branches, um, it, it cloaks what schools really are, which is just, you know, feeders for the state by and large. Um, that, you know, that's really what the end goal is, is to have uh, people be completely subservient. Um, and, I, you know, I, I write about this, I talk about this because I have been a former teacher. I've done uh, criminal defense work as relates to juveniles. I still work with young people and things like that. And I just, you know, I, I've seen it up close myself. I participated in it. You know, I, I'm not happy with, <laughs> with, with my passions, but I know what it's like firsthand. And the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And the most powerful tool of the state is to really uh, take charge of people's seemingly good intentions and use it for manipulation control because in doing so, you have 
the most unassailable backdrop, right? I mean, how can you critique these people who are just trying to help the next generation be prepared to be adults and, you know, take care of themselves? I mean, it's really brilliant at how well the indoctrination takes place because you have you have a group of people who are you know supposedly having these good intentions so you have you know these human shields to insulate criticisms um, of what is essentially a 12-year kidnapping process with home release um, and you know any other context nobody would would stand for it you know, nobody would sit there and say oh yeah if Walmart you know makes a law that you have to go to Walmart school and you know do the Walmart pledge every day and it's weird if you think that this is weird right I mean it's just that that mentality that would be so obvious for any other uh, corporate fiction you know suddenly when it's the state it just People just gloss over it, but they, you know, at the same time would be critical if they you know, saw North Korean kids or Chinese kids looting their flags. Like, oh yeah, those are the bad guys. But you know, they can't even look in the mirror and say, "Wait a second, we're doing the same thing they're doing." Um, and sometimes they're not even doing it, at, you know, as as much or with much as much, uh, you know, reverence as compared to U.S. kids and people, you know. So it's it's quite fascinating the par- the power paradigm of school, and I think that school in the world did at least do a good job of kind of capturing that visually. Um, you know, even though they missed the mark when it came to describing <laughs> the ultimate problems and, and solutions, they at least captured that idea that, you know, this is truly a product of pulling young people away from their families and turning them into, um, you know, tools f- to be used for those who are in political power. Yeah, those are all yeah, very good sure, points. They sure did. That, that, that part was well, well stated, and I did appreciate that. Um, and it can be difficult. I understand. We know when you're already being robbed for the tuition of the children today mm-hmm. to then again, you know, take them home and spend time and school your children or send them to private school, you know, double paying effectively. But these, you know, it's so important to teach children the, the truth when they're young because, you know, there are still people today. I mean, adults, you know, grandparents, you know, retired folk who, you know, put their hand over their heart and sing God bless America and, you know, go to the baseball games and, you know, treat it with reverence. And I mean, the, what, what happens to you as a child really echoes throughout your life. And especially when people have, you know, jobs and they've got, you know, families to feed and things to do to, you know, just live their lives. And they can't take the time to, you know, really think about this from a deep philosophical perspective. And most people aren't aware of, you know, this perspective on, on, on the state. So, man, it's just so important that this kind of information gets out there. Now, which one was I've, I've had enough of it. I mean, how does the state continue, you know, if it doesn't keep indoctrinating kids? I don't know. Right. And, and wasn't that um, <laughs> Lenin or Stalin who said that, you know, give me a kid from when he's five years old to when he's 18 and, and I'll have him forever. Something along those lines. It sounds familiar. Yeah, and it, I'm not sure offhand, but it certainly seems it's the truth, regardless of whoever said it. I mean, that is absolutely the truth. If you have a child during their formative years and you're their influence for ethics, you, you there's a lot of fighting intellectually you have to do to undo uh, those assumptions that are built into a kid's life. Right. I mean, just in our own experience, you know, when you argue with the statist, it's like you're bumping up against their cognitive dissonance and their indoctrination. And it can be a really violent, not to say aggressive violent, but, you know, I mean, when you talk to somebody and you're bringing up a very uncomfortable subject, when it's really digging into that indoctrination, they will react very negatively and very, you know, angrily. It's sometimes when you suggest that maybe the state shouldn't be involved in education. Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't want kids to be educated. (laughs) Oh, yeah. 
I mean, it, it's a great it's a great paradigm for them to play off of because you know this those who are in control of the state can literally turn it into every type of heartstring emotional pill you can imagine. You hate kids. You don't want them to be successful. You don't love them. You know all this other stuff. I mean, and it's it's really nuts um, how much the nature of schooling and children can be used as a political tool. I mean, and that's why many of those in history, you know who uh, wanted to take control over, you know, the, the nation that they were ruling over, focused on getting the youth first, because it's it's very wise, if you're going to be a tyrant, to make sure that the upcoming generation is already bought in, you know, without even argument, with just by assumption of culture, that your rule is basically divine, that, you know, it's, of course, you know, you, you're supposed to be in power. And that's every, you know, every single major successful tyrant I mean, I, I use tyrant, but really that's just descriptive of all political leaders, but they focus on making sure that the next generation is groomed to accept their rule. Yeah, you even saw it in the documentary itself when they were t- teaching the Indian kids that their homes were primitive and backwards. Like they were literally telling them like, hey, where you came from is is not something that you want to go back to. Right. That, yeah, I mean, they definitely do that. And they'll they'll say that for all kinds of things too. Um, gosh, it's really, you know, it, and that really shines through when you talk to teachers because for many of them, if you are able to get them to open up a little bit, on the internet, many of them do. They crack. In person, a little harder. But on the internet or and behind the closed doors in teachers' meetings, I mean, they'll all say the same thing by and large, which is, you know, parents are just too stupid to raise kids and they need professional help. And without this professional you know, gaggle of teachers, kids would just be, you know, eating crayons and things like that and they'd be dumb. Um, and it's literally the complete opposite um, in terms of actual biology, psychology, and uh, nurturing that children are actually naturally curious and natural learners. And it's the nature of schooling that destroys that natural curiosity. Um, you know, that paradigm there is, you know, built into uh, teachers' minds and they push that onto students um, through shaming tactics, uh, getting young people to constantly question themselves, not in a good Socratic way, but in a competency way. Uh, and I think that's the grading process, which is really just meant to be an obedience test because grades in themselves don't communicate necessarily knowledge. Um, you know, you can know things but refuse to do assignments as, you know, I've seen many uh, very intelligent young people do. They just don't want to do homework or this or that. So, you know, grades are really just signaling of um, someone's obedience to do things within a certain given period. And, uh, you know, that process breaks down young people's creativity. It breaks down young people's uh, natural spirit of wanting to uh, explore the world around them. And I think, you know, just bring it back to the movie as well. You know, I thought it was a good note how they said, all these kids were once before in the fields, in nature, learning about animals. And now when they learn about it, it's just in a textbook looking at pictures. And I mean, I think that's a great point. Like this whole idea of you have to go stick a bunch of people into a sterile room in order to learn instead of the real thing. It's just it's just such something that should be you know so obvious, but that's become profound in a world where everybody, th- everybody thinks, you know, you have to just congregate 30 kids, you know, in a room and you know, show them images of the world as opposed to actually going out and experiencing it. Reminds me of an episode of Rick and Morty where, uh, you know, Rick is constantly saying how school is just for stupid people. And he's, and he's, yeah. and he's pretty much true. But there's actually a specific episode where I think uh, Morty's mom wants him to stop going on adventures. And Rick is like, but he's learning so much actually out in the real world, experiencing science and experiencing all these other worlds. And you want him to just sit in a room and listen to a teacher blather on about some crap? <laughs> just ridiculous. Right. And it is. And more than ever, you know, the excuses are just gone. Like the idea of, oh, this young person's not going to have access to, you know, this or that. And it's like the internet 
alone has destroyed that paradigm. I mean, you know, the, now literally the world's knowledge is at your fingertips. If you want to learn or do anything, you can with a couple clicks and you could be watching a YouTube video, you know, a tutorial how to do stuff. You could watch 4K footage from people around the world. You could talk to people in different languages around the world. Uh, you know, there's apps for that where people who want to just like learn languages can talk to other people, you know, and it's, you know, no cost in terms of, you know, upfront cost. So, you know, we live in a world now more than ever where the excuses are just not there. Um, you know, at, virtually every young person could reasonably get access to tools of the culture on, and really learn anything they want whenever. So, Right. And you make a great point about, you know, a lot of schooling and, you know, child labor laws affect this, but a lot of schooling is a lot of wasted time. I mean, I can't tell you how many hours I spent in school that I'm never going to need and even at the time I was going, you know, this is just pointless. Why am I here? When today, you know, if you want to be a tradesman, you know, it probably at, you know, 11, 12, 13, you could be a master knowing about everything just by watching YouTube videos about how to be a mechanic or I don't know, an iron smelter or, you know, you name it. There's any number of training available to, you know, pursue whatever your life dream is. And sure, some people will want to be, you know, plumbers and electricians and great. And you can learn how to do that on YouTube. But then there's also all the high-minded philosophy and every other thing under the sun. So yeah, you're right. There's just really no excuse to say that, well, if we didn't have state education, we wouldn't have education and the kids wouldn't get educated. And you know, are you kidding me? Yeah. it's. I mean, it's literally the opposite. There's one, Sugatra Mitra, there's this one Indian guy who he set up computers in very poor districts in India. And the kids from the slums who didn't have formal education would come on the computer and they would teach themselves how to use it, other languages, and all kinds of crazy stuff. He just he installed a computer into walls in the slums. And kids, what happened uh, was the kids would teach each other. So in other words, one kid learned one thing, and the other kid would you know, know another thing, and they'd help each other out. And basically, just by having fun with friends and talking, all these kids were learning math, English, all kinds of crazy topics just because it was there and they were just naturally curious. Um, it's just one of many examples. You know, the Sudbury Valley School is another great example of how all young people really need um, is love and support from the adults who are in their lives in terms of uh, just being there for them, just resources and just access to the general tools of the culture. Um, and, you know, more than ever, it's, it's just becoming a, a reality for most people. And so one of the funny critiques that I always see is like, well, what about all those poor kids and stuff like that? And, you know, I've seen poor kids, like kids whose their parents are like in Section 8 housing and they, you know, come to school and their underwear is literally a plastic grocery bag. Like, I've seen that kind of poor. And when you're dealing with that level of poverty, school is not the, like, the answer to begin with. Like, if you're already a poor person, right, and you don't have home support, school is where you have all these added responsibilities and grading that's forced upon you in a limited time window where you, if you don't have home support, you know, single parent, always work and don't have a lot of good food. I mean, compared to the other kids who might have support, you're at a disadvantage in terms of grading. You know, there's no grace for those kids. You, you know, you, you still are taking the same test. There's no, uh, there's no poverty, uh, you know, that gives you special grading privileges. Um, even under like you consider like there's 504 plans and IEPs and stuff like that, special programs for, for kids who are at need. But, you know, getting free lunch doesn't, you know, fix the other home life issues. So whenever people talk about poverty and issues like that, I mean, my response is very simple. If you have that situation, there's a lot more that needs to happen than just your education in terms of, of wholeness. You know what I mean? You need family support. You might need your you know, mom or your dad or whoever, aunt, uncle, whoever, 
to have help in learning how to parent and learning how to become uh, more wealthy, you know, how to better their skills. You know what I mean? The, the school's not there for the parents. School isn't, you know, parenting class. School isn't uh, how to not be poor class. So it's not alleviating those other stressors. So since it's not alleviating the other stressors, uh, all it's doing is taking these poor kids and putting them into a situation of high pressure and high stakes testing where they're going to just be labeled as failures anyway, uh, you know, compared to their economically more, at, you know, at a greater advantage peers uh, or, more, or more home support, you know, two parent household and, you know, love and all that good stuff. So, you know, it's just really ridiculous, this idea of, oh, yeah, but what about the poor kids? Like, yeah, the poor kids, are the ones who are the most likely to be destroyed by the schooling system, the most likely to be recommended for, you know, ADHD medication, the most likely to end up getting arrested. Um, because of lack of home support and, you know, truancy laws and stuff like that. So it's just the opposite of what people think. Yeah. And that was another thing that the, the, the movie did fairly well, at least bringing up the, is this one size fits all approach that government takes. Of course, everyone learns differently, but you would never really know that um, based on, you know, if you're just looking at the average modern U.S. school, because, you know, the federal government, you know, has certain standards, you know, the Department of Education has certain standards and you have to meet that in order to get the federal funding. So you have to implement certain programs in certain ways and you have to teach in certain ways and you have to go follow by certain textbooks and you know it's all by these federal standards and so it doesn't leave a lot of room for alternative approaches to education it doesn't leave any kind of competition to perhaps teach a kid better or teach a set of group kids better because you just have this virtual monopoly and you're not actually competing with any other kind of schooling systems because you're forcing people to pay you so in order to actually get out you'd have to pay double but you know you get this one size fits all approach and you essentially they're saying that you get kind of one size fits all or you get this kind of like single type of person that comes out of it and you get, you know, other people to get left by the wayside. And, and on one, one part of me wants to say, yeah, that's competition. Sorry, that's, that makes everybody better. Competition is good in terms of succeeding or failing. But like you've said, and like it's very demonstrably true that, you know, it's not necessarily, you're not really teaching anybody necessarily anything. It doesn't really display anything but obedience and the ability to memorize and regurgitate. It's really, I mean, how do we even know that it's the best way to teach anybody? Especially when, I mean, yeah, they'll, they'll change up the system every once in a while and everybody all of a sudden has to change the way they teach. It's, uh, I, my father was a teacher for many, many years and he had to go through this on a regular basis where you know he figured he knew how to teach kids pretty good and kids seemed to respond really well and do really well in his class and do really well in future schooling based on his teachings. But every couple of years, the administration would have some new program and he'd have to like throw everything out and start over again based on the latest fad or craze when there's no competition. There's no, you know, price. There's no, you know, real understanding of value gained based on what you're doing. It's like they're just throwing shit at a wall and they don't know what's sticking. They're just like, we don't know. There's no, there's no feedback mechanism because we don't know what people are willing to pay for because we're forcing people to pay for it. Right. No, exactly. And, you know, two notes like off what you're talking about. One is that, um, you know, this one size fits policy has been the norm for so long. And what's starting to change is this, the state educational bureaucrats are trying to shift things to do this thing called universal design for learning, which is like, oh, teachers, you know, give kids multiple means of representation and multiple means of tools like, you know, to whiteboards and digital boards and other ways of like doing things They're like, oh, yeah, everybody learns different. But it's still, again, just because you give kids more ways to do it, um, you know, you're still having the exact same curriculum though, and the same standards. And they're doing that um, 
kind of change up as well with tech, educational technology because they understand that young kids are just really not having it anymore because they're growing up with cell phones and all this other stuff and school's just too slow for them. So they're starting to switch over to like um, prog- self-progression-based learning modules. So like kids are just doing course modules at their own pace. So like, oh, see, look, it's so much better now because kids can do multiple ways of representing their work and multiple tools to learn. And now they can go at their own pace. But again, it's still the same one size fits all policy when it comes to you have to complete a certain progression, you have to complete a certain number of tasks and all this other stuff. So this, you know, the government's masking the nature of the compulsion even further, especially with things that are coming up um, by trying to make those adjustments. But it's the same old thing. It's the same old one size fits all policy for kids in terms of what they're learning um, and age-based progressions. Uh, you know, so it's it's really just <laughs> the same old, same old, you know, repackage. And on that, you know, that turd, exactly what you're saying with the changing of curriculums and methods. Like I experienced that too, you know, as a teacher um, and lots of teachers were leaving because of that. Uh, because every number of years that they'd be like, oh, this is the latest fad. Everybody's got to do this and it's all new trainings. And of course, you know, the cronyism that exists with the training companies and the state and the kickbacks, you know, they're constantly pushing out new seminars and new books because they're trying to, you know, build the school districts for as much money as they can. And the teachers are just, you know, pissed off because now their tenure binder that they just made to like create the perfect lesson or whatever, you know, in their minds, of course, um, now has to go to scrap because now they have to redo the standards. And then when they switched it to the standards-based learning, in other words, these kind of like common core standards that a lot of states have ripped from, now what they do, and this is this is really bonkers, but what they do is they just take the standards and they just move them in order every year, every couple of years. And that way the publishing companies can like continue to to transform the textbooks and transform the trainings just because all they have to do is move the standards in the order that you teach it. And all of a sudden, oh, you know, all this new stuff. So there's so much cronyism going on. It's it's really maddening. And even teachers who, you know, again, I, I don't like teachers at all really, uh, but <laughs> self-hate here. But, you know, it's, it's, you know, even the teachers who, you know, were okay with the old system and just had enough and a lot of them throw in the towel. And many schools across the United States, as it stands, are just can't retain teachers because the amount of work it takes to keep up with all the new things and technologies that keep, you know, switching up, keeping up with all the 504s and IEPs, you know, special accommodations for kids when literally we're like hitting that point where it's like one in three and eventually one in two kids is going to be diagnosed with something with ADHD or autism. I mean, it's just, it's stupid, insane. And now you're having to do all these specific special accommodations that you just can't do. Like it's humanly impossible within the time that you have to teach and do everything else. Like it's just not happening. So it's like teachers are just like blowing their brains out over it, which is great. Of course, I want them to all fall apart, but (laughs) it's just one giant, you know, cluster of, of, terrible things that are happening all at once. And of course, who's getting the most hurt? It's the kids. The kids are the ones who are being tormented, who are being forced to sit for hours to do really stupid exams for the local district and for the state so that they can get those kickbacks from the crony testing companies. And, you know, it's sick. It's you're going to see in the next uh, 10, 20 years that this is going to be some of the sickest, uh, you know, kids coming out of schools. And it's because they're gonna. Their mental health issues are gonna be just through the roof because of the nature of schooling as it is. I mean, I, I watched it firsthand. I'm like, what they're doing to kids is literally child abuse, insa- mm-hmm. insane. So, um, you know, there's gonna be some real uh, butterfly effects from how schooling has been in the past 20 years, especially. Wow. Well, yeah. this is this is anecdotal, but speaking of teachers, I, I just want to bring up this little point. Um, you know, we I remember in middle school, we had a teacher who would roll in hungover pretty much every day because it was just, you know, it was just the way he lived. <laughs> 
And it just makes me wonder, you know, how much, because we're also having in the local area where I'm living, um, they're having a teacher strike you know, because they want a fair pay raise. And it just makes me wonder, you know, what should a bad teacher get paid? And nobody knows because we don't have any kind of a market because there's no kind of a price incentive mechanism <laughs> for people, you know, you know, parents to voluntarily pay individual teachers. I and mean, there's no way you just, you just get a certain amount of money stolen from you every month and it goes to their salary. And what kind of, you know, mechanism is there to even get rid of a bad teacher? It's, it's really like onerous and it's like almost impossible to get rid of one if they want to. And then the good ones, like you did, the process you're describing you know, it keeps gets rid of the good ones because the good ones are like, screw this crap. This isn't the way to do it. It's uh, it's a total shit show. Daniel, do you got any thoughts on this? It sounds like a very volatile cocktail where you've got the intellectual high-mindedness where these teachers think in very broad strokes that they're martyrs because they do have to put up with this bullshit. But they also seem to think so down on the parents themselves. So they find that they're in a position where they're necessary, yet they feel underpaid and underappreciated. And then you give up, you know, all these change-ups on them every couple of years. So they're in a very difficult situation. And I can see them totally feeling like they're victims. Um, even though, you know, they aren't subject to really market forces and market pressures, I can see like why the psychology might be the way that it is. But to, to Jack's point, the kids are the ones who end up losing at the at the end of all of this. And so it's um I, I, I wouldn't mind seeing it kind of fall apart. I think that the uh, the whole concept of this whole top down one size fits all education model is a recipe for disaster. And the more that we can get into individualized um, sort of guiding children in whatever they express interest in and you facilitate and you provide resources and you explore with them. Because the point was made earlier, kids are naturally curious and being put into the, um, you know, you ride the little yellow prison bus to the day day camp, mm -hmm. day prison, the, the fun of learning gets beaten out of you. Not physically, mind you. I mean, when I was a kid, I actually did get paddled with a, with a paddle. Um, I don't think they can do that anymore, at least not in this state. But yeah, I, I, I remember many times just being like, why am I here? This is so pointless. Because they can only teach to, you know, the, the middle band of the class, right? You're going to have a bunch of advanced people who they're not going to really learn much from, from that class. And then you got a bunch of people at the bottom who shouldn't be there anyway. And it's just uh, the nature of, of trying to fit everyone all into the same shaped little box. But with that, I think that uh, we're approaching roughly our time limit for the last nighters here. Wow. So maybe a last comment, and then we can do our final summary and review, and then potentially get into some more questions. Because I do want to get into the um, what about their socialization and, and questions of that nature. Uh, maybe we can do that in the um, Patreon bonus content area uh, that can be uh, made available to people at lastnighters.com slash Patreon. So let's start. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll definitely save some good stuff for the bonus then. I got, cause I got some good stuff. <laughs> All right. All right. Sounds good. So, um, Robert, why don't you give us your summary and review and then your, your score out of 10 uh, to one decimal point? Okay. Well, I think this movie raises a lot of interesting issues. And, um, maybe I was a little bit harsh on it as I was watching it because I really just react. I just bumped up really hard against all the, the kind of social justice lefty talking points and the idea that, you know, wealth is bad and poverty, grinding poverty is good as long as you have this like cultural, you know, backbone. Um, you know, 
it's it seems to be that the the older generation is constantly lamenting the change in the culture. It's like in my day, blah 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 blah, and the kids today, blah 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 blah. They don't listen. It's like a story as old as time, and the, and the older generation is constantly feeling you know left out of the the new world that the kids are creating. And you know, there you don't value the traditions like we used to value the traditions. And and there's something to be said for that, but it's also a story as old as time. And so there's a lot of that in this movie. And there's a lot of glorifying poverty. And there's a lot of trashing, you know, materialism and wealth. And it's a lot of value judgment going on. But then there's also some really good stuff. Like the movie talks about the slaughter of the Philippines, which almost never gets brought up. But it was one of the colonialist actions of the United States in the 1900s. And late, I think it's late 19, 1890s and early 1900s where we just invaded and slaughtered like half a million, like the movie said. And you never hear about it. Never gets talked about. Never brought up. But it, it's because it's, it's indefensible. But essentially the Philippines was like a U.S. colonial place after we subjugated violently the, the people just defending their homes. But um, it also brings up good points about the, the one-size-fits-all situation of, you know, of this non-market force monopoly type schooling system. And anybody being forced into it is, of course, immoral. I mean, truancy laws, are you kidding me? In 2018, we're still like rounding up kids that don't want to go to school when they got cell phones that have all the world's knowledge on them. I, <laughs> this is ridiculous. And then, of course, the fact that they're, you know, indoctrination centers and creating drones to fight in wars. Um, lot, lots of good stuff. Lots of good stuff. But yeah, the bent really, really turned me off on this movie. So I'm not going to give it a positive score, but I still think it's it brings up some important issues. And I do appreciate having watched it. So I'm going to give this a 4.1 out of 10. Um, they're probably better movies that discuss these kinds of things, but I haven't seen them. So I'm going to say it's the best movie of its type that I've seen. But um, I, I don't think it offers any kind of real real solutions. It, but it does, does bring up some, some, some problems. So that's, that's my score. All right. Very good, Robert. And Jack, over to you. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I, I don't really have a, a pick score, but there's one powerful thing I think you just said that may have left me with some inspiration. I, I'm not sure if I'll use it, but I, I'm tempted on it now that you mentioned it. And you said, this is one of the best, if not, you know, the only movie you've seen tackling this issue. And I'm like, whoa, wait a second. That was my thoughts on it as well. Like, you know, th this is not commonly covered because anyone who talks about it gets blackballed, lampooned, threatened, shamed, told that they're, you know, an idiot or uh, incompetent. Because if you critique it, then they, they just automatically assume, well, you must be a dummy. You must be, you know, a, a bumbling buffoon. And that's actually kind of, I think, an important call to action because this is something that is so powerful and important, how much it affects, um, you know, people in society at large. There should be another documentary that tackles this issue from a more, uh, I guess you could say, academic, if we want, standpoint that's more you know consistent around the nature of, of property individual rights and things like that and maybe that is something to to do and to you know fund and you know do a project for and create because i you know there's like a sudbury valley documentary from you know i don't know 10 years or more back but there isn't anything i have or at least i haven't seen that is exhaustive i mean i've seen some things about you know prussian you know schooling and the history stuff like that but nothing that really both critiques the nature of school and you know its history inception and so forth but also dives into the what is better what is more ethical and effective and i think that's actually something that might be around the corner for production for uh, for making something about so that might be something to do all right 
Well done, Daniel. All right. Well, I think that you guys have uh, both torn this thing apart pretty, pretty well. Uh, for me, I also enjoyed the fact that it was recommended and it was definitely worth watching because it, it is at least a critique of the current model. And as I alluded to in the very opening here, it's sort of like they can see the problems, but then they misdiagnose like what is causing them and what the right solution might be. And they do demonize money and consumerism and advertising, and they really play up the um, destruction of culture. Now, I'm sort of sympathetic to that, um, especially in light of how schooling from this top-down model drives out the individuality and the cultures um, that are, you know, native to the people who who uh, are being forced into these schools. And, and so that is definitely a loss. And I think that without the misallocation and without the force, that you would see a lot less of it. And it also comes down to, you know, voluntary choice, like people desiring to learn things and, and seeking out the knowledge that they think will actually improve their lives versus being forced into it, into these militaristic uh, day prisons. So, you know, school basically is a day prison and they make that pretty well known within this documentary. So I think, again, the diagnosis really good. Um, the point of the, you know, road to hell is paved with good intentions. Um, Jack, you, you actually brought up a point where, you know, they not only have the intellectual cover, but they also have the emotional cover. And it's like a, a really good one-two punch in favor of the state. And then, of course, in the Bastiat sense, you know, if you ever um, say anything bad about how the manner in which something is provided, you're assumed to be against that thing being in existence at all versus just the mode and method by which it's paid for and administered. Um, and uh, it reminds me of a Rothbard quote where he says, it's clearly absurd to judge a person's um, education by how much schooling they've had, to roughly paraphrase. I don't have it exactly. Um, but Rothbard had a, a, a really good series of lectures on the progressive era, and they just resulted in a book called The Progressive Era, where he talks about how um, the development of the U.S. Uh, education system was used as a weaponized form of driving, um, I think, Catholics out. Um, and pushing the Protestant views, uh, liturgical views within a you know top-down structured education process. So I'm going to post a link to that um, down below on the show notes page, which can be found at lastnighters.com slash 35. My score is going to be a little bit higher than Robert's. I'm going to go with a 5.5 on this bad boy. And uh, we'll start uh, winding down the show here. We'll get into some bonus content that's available for our Patreon supporters. But before we do that, um, Jack, why don't you just remind everyone where they can find your stuff, and then uh, we'll say goodnight for this portion of the show. Sure. If you want to get in touch with the the stuff I kind of, I mean, lean toward the most. That is my my favorite part of the things that I do because it's my, more like my hobby. But that's volcomic.com. That's for the Voluntarist comic series. But even if you don't see volcomic.com uh, or you know any of those videos related to that, I'm sure you'll see memes I make somewhere because I, I have a very large share of the, of the meme market cornered at this point. <laughs> memes for days. Memes for days. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, this has been The Last Nighters, uh, episode 35. So show notes and more at lastnighters.com slash 35. And we're also on the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. So please do check that out. And all of the other great content that they're producing over there at the Launchpad. Super good stuff. And I'll say uh, good night from last night. School sucks.
All right. And we still got our actual Anarchy audience for a few more minutes. Um, I did want to mention that uh, we were your centerfold in last year's Voluntarius comic. So if anyone has uh, has that, go ahead and open right down to the middle and you can see our two ugly mugs in our advertisement <laughs> from last year. And we're doing it again this year. And so that's going to be the basis for the rebrand for the Last Nighters uh, website at lastnighters.com. And so uh, there's a sneak preview of that artwork available on our Patreon. So if you want to take a peek at that, uh, Jack's already seen it. Robert's seen it. Um, you guys, you guys approve? Thumbs up on that? Yeah, man. What what issue is uh, going to be in? Uh, this your latest ad's going to be in issue two. Um, that is Origins two. So what's happening now is I'm going through the chronology on the story, starting with you know the inception issue. So before I, I had done a number of campaigns. Um, but they ended up being more prototypes for the future. Um, and then once I kind of laid the groundwork for the universe, now I've been like officially working the canon. So you, you guys jumped in with the double pager in the Origins 1, which I just was giddy to see because I'm like, whoa, this, I mean, it, it feels so real with this comic book because now there's this really cool you know, double page ad that's actually like liberty oriented and, and you know, it's well designed to like look like a theater review at the rating. I'm like, this, you know, this looks good. It's high quality. So I was pumped when I saw that. And, um, you know, lots of people got to see that because I went out to all the past supporters of, you know, the last whatever eight campaigns. Um, and lots of people have actually been downloading or, or buying the book, uh, comic books, um, you know, to, to even my surprise, because I mean, again, I'm, I'm making a comic that's literally a niche of a ditch. And I, I'm still shocked at how many people, uh, you know, read it or share to this or that and how the fan base has just continued to grow. Um to my happy surprise, of course, you know, I mean, that was the goal, but I mean, it's just, it's always incredible to see, you know, hey, look, you like Liberty and you like comics. Oh, and you like superhero comics. Great. You know, it's, it's pretty wild to see that there's that many people in the niche of a niche that I do. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. We're, we're excited to be uh, a part of it, a small part. And, um, you know, I had tempted to, uh, do, since it's a centerfold, um, topless photos for it, but, um, Robert didn't really like my idea. It was going to be the the Seinfeld with Kramer and George um, doing the uh, <laughs> where it looks like he's wearing a sweater, but he's not. I could have sold a thousand extra copies if I told him that was in there. <laughs> <laughs> maybe next time. Maybe, maybe next year. Maybe next time. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, I, I want to thank you for uh, for being with us on this uh, actual anarchy portion of the show as well. And we're going to get into some of the additional notes and talk about socialization and some of the other juicy tidbits that you're saving for our Kathleen Turner Overdrive, which is available for the Patreon supporters. So we can get into that in just a moment. Um, and uh, everyone, you can find the show notes and more for this uh, Actual Anarchy show at actualanarchy.com slash 92. And uh, Robert, do you have any final words while we say goodnight uh, before we get into the Kathleen Turner Overdrive? Thanks for listening, everybody. It makes me happy that you're all checking us out, listening to these thoughts, these these ideas that uh, really, if they were implemented, would, uh, in my opinion, make for a better world, a far, far better world free of coercion and violence, violent aggression. Uh, so yeah, spread the word, spread the show, share us on social media, get us out there. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do